0: Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. Throughout the month of December, The Ringer staff will be releasing their year-end reviews covering the best and worst of 2018 in sports, TV, movies, music, and more. This week on the site, you can read Chris Ryan and Allison Herman on the best TV shows of 2018, and Chase Arano and Rob Harvilla on the best albums of the year. You can check it all out on theringer.com.
1: David, Twitter enemies Eve Pizer and Barry Weiss met in real life and decided that no matter their irreconcilable ideological differences, darn it, they liked each other. Mm. I want to ask you the opposite question. <laughs> Who do you like in real life that you're pretty sure you would hate online? Oh,
0: no. Um, these are different skill sets, right? These are different skill sets. Um, well, I, can, I mean, our, our, our producer, Jim, is definitely <laughs> on that list. Wait, which part? <laughs> Every time he sends me a tweet and he's like Do you think it would be funny if I tweeted this I'm just like I never want to talk to you again
1: (laughs) Um, I feel it's an HR Violation to answer this email
0: (laughs) Uh, You know I think that there's probably a lot of people that fit that Category tweeting in a vacuum is I think What got us into this mess although I don't You know I don't want to like I don't want to play the Old man card on the younger generation But this whole idea that you would necessary that that it would be impossible to like someone that you disliked online is just sort of wacky right i mean the entire history of well well, let's keep it pertinent pertinent to this podcast the entire history of journalism is people that is like people that hate each other on the op-ed page having drinks together at midnight (laughs) you know (laughs) at
1: midnight (laughs) or two in the morning or 6
0: p.m like all day long (laughs) um but yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. What, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, it's just different skill sets, right? I mean, if someone was just kind of pumping out a bunch of jokes in front of me that kind of fit in a nice little template, you know, uh, the feels when dot dot dot, you know, if someone was sure. just giving me a lot of that, I think I would really hate them uh, with yeah. a passion. Oh, yeah. Uh, and but I think I would like them, um, you know, online just fine, right? Because I just sort of wanted that little happy pellet uh, to come with. I, I'm trying to think of the ringer employees who are whose online presence is most like. Their Twitter, their real life presence, um, the most
0: authentic to who they are in real life, or to who they are in their like just writing. Similar,
1: life? yeah, no, no, just just uh, Twitter
0: in real life. Oh, I mean, like Jason Gallagher is one of our great video producers. Is one of the most like wonderful and hilarious and authentic people at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Clark, online... pretty
1: close. Pretty yeah, uh, Kevin
0: Clark's yeah, d- totally different style, but yes, exactly. More um, hardbitten. Um, yeah, uh, I'm kind of similar in that I don't ever tweet and I never respond to people in real life either.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, got a couple of emails <laughs> waiting for you. We are the Uneasy Alliance of Media Podcasting. This is The Press Box, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you don't have to worry about what Cam Newton wears to a postgame press conference. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. We've got three burning issues to cover today, David. First, let's talk about the death of former president George H.W. Bush and the persistent image of him that was created in the media. Second, we'll talk about yet another player the NFL didn't suspend until TMZ got the video, the curious case of Kansas City Chiefs running back Kareem Hunt. And finally, last week was Russia Scandal Week in Washington again. And what better person to emerge from the woodwork of collusion than noted conspiracist, Jerome Corsi, Corsi's back. Oh. We explain. Plus is always the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with George Bush, who died Friday at 94. Can we call him George Bush again? Remember when we called him George Bush? And That was it. We have yes. to insert an HW there. Uh, what I wanted to focus on with you is how the Bush we came to know, or thought we know, thought we knew, was created in the media. And let me start with a thought that I want to hear your response to. All of these obits I've been reading, many of them lovely, uh, feel like a giant subtweet of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean George Bush was a man of many nice qualities, many redeeming qualities. But what I feel is happening is many of those qualities are being exaggerated or sort of taken out of context to highlight Trump's deficiencies. You yeah. know, when I see the front of the New York Times yesterday saying a genial force in American politics, there's a good case both ways with George Bush, right? As with a lot of politicians. Mm-hmm. But I feel the word genial only gets on the front page of the Times if Donald Trump, who is not genial at all, is president. What do you think of that?
0: I mean, there there are, there are a lot of ways I would think if you were an, like if an alien came down and, and, and took a look at, you know, the history of the uh, America, America's ruling parties in the presidency in real life. I mean, like you know, there's, there's uh, the the case for like the Bush family being the norm is, is certainly not, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's hereditary monarchy. You know I mean? It's the same with the Clintons. It's, this is the complaint that people had about, you know, I've had about the presidency. um, And I think there's some, you know, it's justifiable. And I, I, I don't know that, that that's really what I would go to. I mean, he's necessarily the first president I would go to as like, the perfect example of the anti trump but that is sort of what we fall back on you know i mean there's a certain we're, we're all we're all we're all you know our our country was born out of the in rebellion of the british throne and we we still like that sort of thing for some reason um but i do think that there is that that, that is the sense in which i mean the very traditional you know northeastern family he went to texas he sort of lived the american dream or at least the american story in that way he had this you know, a career as a as a as, a, as a spy or you know, see on the intelligent side, and and um and then you know, bred a well-heeled family of future presidents or, or presidential candidates. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how he's less of a less of a fairy. I mean, fairy tale is not the right word. How he's less of a. I guess he. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's just as ridiculous for him to be an aspirational figure as Donald Trump. But, but yeah. he does. But he does have a certain dignity. I think that that and that's and that's he. He's the sort of person that's uh, that's you know uh, okay with the fact that that he doesn't know how to check out groceries at the grocery store. And in that <laughs> sense, in that sense, he is more. Uh, he, he's he's the sort of president that we wish we had.
1: Well, I just think he's he's a normal. He's in many ways a normal president. Whether sure. you agree with the you know first uh, Gulf War or. The tax increase uh, that he passed, or you know, his management of the end of the Cold War, I just don't. I just when I see these examples, they just they just tell me George Bush was not particularly unique in a lot of these ways. He just wasn't Trump. Like the one that keeps getting tweeted is that note he left for Bill Clinton when he vacated. Like literally, everyone has tweeted I've, this now.
0: I've heard that read thirty times <laughs> today on the various news channels.
1: So. You know, and and look, there's some you know. Was was George Bush, you know, in in those kinds of – he was very good at gestures. He was very good and – and I believe he meant every word of that note. But, you know, like in the American experience, we've had how many successful peaceful transfers of power in a row now? And, you know, if I think of somebody gracefully turning over the White House, I think of Barack Obama turning it over to a guy who built his political career on the racist birther thing. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean that to me is – so again, it's like – Boy, you know, remember a gentler time when the president used to graciously turn over the the White House to a political enemy? It's like, yes, I do. That was 2016. I know that was like I know that was not that was not long ago. Or the one about him. Um, the other bit we saw was that uh, you know he really liked Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey is making fun of him on TV, <laughs> and he just wrapped it sounds like we remember that Sarah Palin loved the Tina Fey impression and went on Saturday yes. Night Live right before the election in 2008, right? Yeah. We all, we, we know this, right? Like that, again, and again, there's nothing, there is, that is in a way an admirable quality of George Bush's. It's not abnormal, though. Abnormal is now, and it only, it only looks like particularly newsworthy or saintly when you take it completely in a vacuum. (laughs) uh, When you, where excuse me, when you don't take it in a vacuum, when you put it against the current occupant of the White House.
0: Well, and there's, but okay, yes, all of that is true, but there's also the element of, you know, just general passage of time. Yes, um,
1: it rehabilitates everybody, right?
0: It rehabilitates everybody. I mean, it's a miracle that 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 former President Bush lived as long as he did. It rehabilitated um, his son. It certainly, yeah, absolutely. Just like we were saying before we came on the air, just start painting dogs, and the world forgives all your sins. But but that, I mean, the letter that he wrote to Bill Clinton that we <laughs> that you mentioned before was 1993. I mean that was a long time ago, right? I mean this ago. is there are listeners of this podcast that may I might, might not have been born then. And uh But yeah, I mean, so that, I mean, it really is, we might as well, I mean, you could, we could just play, Jim, can you just play some old violin music and we'll make this seem like a PBS documentary, (laughs) but like, the line, but just the prose seems so archaic. They're like, you will be our president when you read this note, you know, (laughs) I wish you well. (laughs) Um, It it just feels like something out of another era. And I think in some ways, and I don't mean this as like a slight, but I, but I do, but I feel like that's the nostalgia for that. That period of normalcy in the not-too-distant past mm-hmm. is is every bit a sort of fabrication of memory as the Make America Great Again crowds, uh, you know, version of that.
1: No, I think it is, and I think it's nostalgia just for our younger selves, probably, as much as it is for Bush, right? Absolutely. When we were 30 pounds lighter, when we were screwing around in high school, whenever we were doing uh, in 1993— We'd love to get in the time machine and go back there, and it doesn't really matter who's president. <laughs> I tell you what, here's my other lukewarm take: If George H. W. Bush was rehabilitated by partially rehabilitated by Donald Trump being president, he was mm-hmm. also partially rehabilitated by George W. Bush being president, his mm-hmm. son. Because I think that's you know we didn't we didn't spend a ton of time talking about the H. W. Bush regime during Clinton. Of course, there's plenty of news coming out of Clinton. Nobody had any time. But mm-hmm. when he turned that corner, and the Iraq War started going sideways, and Bush's you know second term started sort of drifting around, all of a sudden people say, "Boy, I wish he were like his father, the guy we gave 37 percent of the vote to in yeah. his reelection campaign," and that to me was the fulcrum where really where where HW uh, began to become this sort of yeah. saintly figure.
0: Sure, and and we we focus so much on on. Juniors, you know the, about the the political machine and everything else that that you know. There, there's a lot of negative aspects that aren't purely political. Although, I no, I guess the point is that everything's political. But um, but I think that, I, and I and I want to g- get back to SNL before we finish this thing. So I don't. so uh, but we, I, we've but got I,
1: Dana Carvey sound coming up. Don't worry. Okay, good.
0: I just because I I I didn't want to sound like I was trying to force this thing to a conclusion. But I think in some ways, the greatest thing. And maybe this is it. Maybe this is the grand organizing theory. That this is the most American thing he could have done. But maybe but but in some ways like the best thing that George H.W. Bush did was just sort of be a noble failure, right? I mean, not, and, not, and I don't mean that as an insult, but he was a we <laughs> no, like look back at he was a one-term president, which is a great achievement for 99.999% of, you know, humanity and of American Americans anyway. Um but you know he he was the vice president before in in the in the Reagan era um he got reelected for a number of reasons but you know the the, elected, the yeah. or sorry he got elected right as a, but 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 you know often seen as the third term of the Reagan presidency mm-hmm. he was a good steward of that you know for the four years that he got and then he was defeated by a you know i mean he he was it, it was not an embarrassing campaign. I very clearly one of my earliest political memories is sitting with my parents on that election night and listening to my dad say he looks pretty relieved, you know, <laughs> when mm-hmm. when the whole have, having that part of his that that segment of his life over. That's interesting. Um you can say what you want to say about his presidency. There are a lot of there's a lot of rare reasonable critiques to be made, but that he, you know, that he I think that he lost the re-election makes it you know, hard to define his era, hard to define his presidency in the way that we're used to doing it. And um and I think the the just the sort of situational aspect of where he stood between Clinton and 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 Reagan uh, you know, I mean, he was just sort of a literal transitional figure, despite all of the, you know, all that he did accomplish for better or worse during his presidency. And I just think that there's, there's not a lot there. I think for for the popular in the popular imagination, we he he just sort of is situated there in between those two presidents, and he went on to be, you know, a public figure as all former presidents are. And that's sort of what makes him so lovable, is that he was not, you know, he was not his son. He was not Clinton. He certainly wasn't Reagan. Um, and, and that sort of makes it easier to for, for us to come together in, you know, eulogy.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's exactly right. He had this line when John Meacham um, wrote that big, very big and very sort of kind biography of him a couple of years ago where he said he feels like an asterisk. You know, between the glory of Reagan um, and Clinton, and that was his—that was his word, an asterisk. And I thought it was just a kind of a fascinating sort of moment. And 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 you know, he he said that late in his life. I don't think he would have said that earlier in his life. But he clearly, what you're what you're saying, I think, rightly is the noble failure gave him this kind of kindliness and kind of you know probably helped him historically. Um, he certainly didn't view it that way. <laughs> he was still smarting over 1992. couple of other vintage media uh, image-making moments, David. Let me direct mm-hmm. you to the cover of the October 29th, 1987 cover of Newsweek, which I have dumped into our Google Docs here. Headline was, Fighting the Wimp Factor. Uh, it showed him driving a boat. <laughs> this is back when Newsweek could uh, rule the world. By the way the the second headline on Newsweek is the latest on cholesterol had a head off heart disease one of the great hearty perennial stories of a <laughs> weekly news magazine. Hmm. Um, George W Bush was kind of his dad's consigliere in the 88 campaign and he had actually brokered this piece this profile which is uh-huh. right when uh, Poppy Bush announced he was running for president and he saw the cover came out he had, of course they had of course had no idea the wimp factor was going to be on the cover. And W wrote in his memoir later, I couldn't believe it. The magazine was insinuating that my father, a World War II bomber pilot, was a wimp. Uh, He calls Newsweek. I railed about editors and hung up. Uh, From then on, I was suspicious of political journalists and their unseen editors. So if we want to know, we've been talking a lot about the press and presidents lately. That, I believe, was George W. Bush's uh, moment where he was done with the press. Uh, Another one that I think kind of locked an image of Bush and Richard's. In the into the public mind. Ann Richards' 1988 Democratic Convention. Jim, can we hear that famous sound?
0: Poor George. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth.
1: It's an amazing line because it, it gets two things in there, right? It gets patrician yeah. George Bush in there. And then it also gets his propensity for malaprops. Yeah. Same line. Yeah. <laughs> born and it's a it foot in it, his mouth. I mean, and also it
0: couldn't be. I mean, there's no, there's no no better person in the world to deliver it because there's this because there's the very
1: loud subtext of like this is what a real Texan sounds like, mm-hmm. and she's got a big smile on her face, and yeah, oh my God, she loved that. Let's talk about Dana Carvey. I read Ben Smith, major domo from BuzzFeed, uh, tweeting about how Richard Ben Kramer had locked a lot of. Bush in our popular imagination. I would love that to be true (laughs) as a fan of what it takes. I have a feeling that Dana Carvey uh, locked in like 95% of what the public thought of Bush on Saturday Night Live. Here is uh, some of his impression from 1989 on the eve of the first Iraq war.
0: The celebration of a military victory won centuries ago in a part of the world where today... 400,000 brave Americans await my order to annihilate Iraq. (laughs) And none of us want war in that whole area out over there. But as commander-in-chief, I am ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full-scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. Probably won't, but then again, I might.
1: What you cannot see there is the amazing Dana Carvey hand gestures. He looks like a third base coach Mm -hmm. as he's sitting there doing Bush. That was fantastic, and I I don't think that was one of those people talked about the Gerald Ford Chevy Chase bit. How Ford, you know, who was an actual college athlete, never got over the kind of idea that he was stumbling and falling down and all this stuff. George Bush never crawled out of that, did he? Out of the Dana Carvey thing, they were one. I feel they're sort of one and the same. They the are same in the American mind.
0: They are. I mean, it's 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 hard for I'm sure for people even a little bit younger than you and I to, to register how little the president was a part of our lives in those days. <laughs> uh, I mean, certainly, I, I I I think I can say with confidence that I saw more of Dana Carvey's President Bush or as much as Dana Carvey's President Bush as I saw of President Bush himself, at least with the you know with the with the audio included. Um, uh, yeah I mean that it, it was it, it was um, intrinsic to our understanding of him I mean that 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 parody and um, I you know I mean and it's not just I think that you know you could watch that even as a kid you'd watch that and you know the hand gestures are kind of a gag the voice is over the top we know that but the, you know there was a certain element to which the wimp thing was tied into that too because you didn't it was hard to extricate Carvey's like diminutive stature right I mean because mm-hmm. you don't we didn't see George Bush, you know, uh, situated amongst other adults in video that frequently. You know, we, we saw, you know, we we we'd just see him behind a podium or whatever. Yeah, and that,
1: we knew he was so you, tall, though, right?
0: No, we knew logically we knew he was tall, but I think that that that, that part of the Carvey impression sort of stuck in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, and everything else, I think, and I think that the voice, you know, I, I mean, it was it was a it was a fucking it was a great impression. <laughs> you know, like what do you, it's it's a great caricature of a guy. And um, but I do think that it was outsized in a way that that it was, um, you know, it was more it was more just pure comedy than satire, and um, and I think that that you know it's it sticks, but at the same time I think that it was I don't know how as sticky as it was I don't
1: I don't know how incisive it was, but I'm not sure that that really is the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I think it was. I think that's an interesting question. That's, pr- that's probably like a full segment on satire on the purpose yeah. of the book and Saturday Night Live. One last night I wanted to hit you with from Maureen Dowd's uh, very long and oh. interesting column about her relationship uh, with Bush. And by the way, I'll say that I, this is probably something that is genuinely unique about him, which is the ability to carry on a long relationship with mm-hmm. someone who wrote about him negatively oh, and yeah. snarkily and especially wrote about his son in that way. Um mm-hmm. She says one of the only things that forty-one, that is the forty-first president of the United States, ever boasted about was when he began hilariously claiming after he got out of office that he had coined the phrase "you demand" in the '60s. So <laughs> jo- jo- George Bush claims to have invented "you demand." He he maintains he was inspired to shout it to the Houston Astros' Rusty Staub as he rounded third base following a home run. And it slowly caught on from there. Doro Bush wrote in her book on her dad, What? <laughs> What? I knew that there
0: was like a long. I knew that there was a longstanding, like you know, there was a history of like who invented the high five, and then it turned out it was an old, it was a baseball player back in the day. But like, I didn't realize that you, demand man, had such a storied history of, from the sport. That's great. Truly,
1: truly, bizarre. that's just
0: really bizarre. I'm also glad to know that George Bush Senior and Maureen Dowd, or the Eve Peiser and Barry Weiss of the greatest generation. <laughs>
1: yeah, they really, once they met in real life, it was, it was just fine from there. <laughs> All right, David. Now time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Did you follow the national and international obsession with the Western Australian steer named Nickers last week, David? Yes.
0: Yes, I did. I did. Later, there it's was a, some fact-checking,
1: yeah, which revealed that Nickers was big, but not exactly super big. Not as big as someone <laughs> made Nickers out to be. <laughs> It was an overworked Twitter joke to say of Knickers, it looks like Andy Reid at his punt, pass, and kick competition. You know Oh, yes. That's good. I like that. That was a good one. I saw that a couple of times. In yesterday's Bears-Giants game, Odell Beckham threw a 49-yard touchdown pass to Russell Shepard. Okay? Kind of a goofy trick play, right? It was an overworked Twitter joke to say that Odell Beckham Jr. is now the best quarterback in New York City. Thanks to Tyler Bolton for that one. And, David, I wanted to have a special Yakov Smirnoff section of this award Twitter joke of the week. Because the deeper we get into the Mueller no. investigation, the more that Yakov Smirnoff joke <laughs> templates have crept into Twitter. Now, if you're not 40 years old, you might be asking, what's a Yakov Smirnoff joke template? <laughs> or I'm a glad you Missouri asked. resident. That's great. <laughs> there we go, Jim. Hit it.
0: In America, there is plenty of light beer, and you can always find a party. In Russia,
1: party always finds you. <laughs> party always finds you, David. <laughs> it's an amazing bit. What, what an ama- I watched him with him on Carson. It was just amazing that that was the whole act. Oh, yeah. And then he'd take these it, great it, shots where he'd say, you know, he'd say, anybody here from Cleveland, you know, and, he you know, how people make fun of Cleveland. You know, he'd say, in Russia, we made fun of one city. It was Cleveland. You know, <laughs> we just get a good laugh. <laughs> I love that guy. All right. Oh, he's great. Um, the overworked Twitter joke here, back back, back to business, uh, came out of the Michael Cohen confession/slash plea deal that was invested in. And anyway, I just saw several variations over the last couple of weeks of in Soviet Russia, dictators invest in you. <laughs> so if you responded to the Mueller investigation by quoting a comedian who peaked during the Cold War, congrats, you made the overworked. Twitter joke
0: of the week. Fantastic.
1: Topic number two, David, Kareem Hunt. Let's start by listening to a snippet from ESPN's Sunday NFL Countdown. The questions here being asked by reporter Lisa Salters. The Chiefs say that you were not truthful with them when you told them back in February about what happened. Were you? The Chiefs are right, and uh, I didn't tell them everything, and, you know, I don't, you know, blame them for anything. My actions caused this, and... I really wish I could, you know, just apologize to them and let them know there's no hard feelings between me and the Chiefs. And, you know, I love the program, love the people there. And I just want to, you know, take this time and better myself and, you know, not let anything like this ever happen again. So the facts are these back in February, police were called to a hotel in downtown Cleveland where Kareem Hunt, second year running back for the Chiefs, lives, nobody was arrested, no charges filed, no suspension from the Chiefs or the NFL, and then TMZ, as they so often do, got a hold of the video, and it shows Hunt pushing the woman, pushing someone into her and knocking her to the ground, and then kicking her while she's on the ground. On Friday, hours after the video's release, Hunt was released by the Chiefs, thus completing the same cycle as Kevin Clark pointed out in our pages that happened with Ray Rice. Here's my question for you. Have we just gotten to a point where the NFL is just so unwilling incompetent whatever to investigate these matters that TMZ is just a necessary part of the life cycle here that we just that something happens there's some kind of nebulous event where there's an inconclusive police report an inconclusive or in this case non-existent NFL investigation and we just need the TMZ video to set the events in motion is that pretty much is that pretty much where we are at this point
0: yeah I mean, just yes. Right? I don't. I don't know any way around. I mean, I, it's hard. I got to tell you, when this when this story broke on Friday, I wasn't. I, w- I wasn't thinking. I mean, I, I was just pretty outraged. I was. I wasn't. You know, very lucid about the subject. I certainly wasn't being snarky about the subject. But my kind of, you know, when I was preparing for the podcast. The thing I just couldn't stop thinking was about the NFL's just their incompetence. And I and because I I can't. I'm trying to parse this. Trying to find my way through this line of argument that the NFL doesn't care enough about these situations to punish people without the intervention of TMZ or or some some other uh, external force, mm-hmm. and I think that there's some truth to that. But I could, but I certainly think the NFL has a, a, just an incredible—I mean, just they're just an unforgivable blind spot in this in this area, and their their inability to to adapt. More than anything is 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 galling, but it's their incompetence that I keep coming back to. Because even if you don't care, if 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 Roger, I don't think Roger Goodell does, but if but if he or anyone else wakes up every day and just says, "I," it literally doesn't matter to me. With the rising of the sun, it doesn't matter to me if there's domestic violence in my league. Even if that's your point of view, be competent enough to have your investigators go destroy the video. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's wild that the NFL is is so, so powerful and so ever-present in our culture and can do some things with such with such, just clean
1: efficiency. Stage a yet, Super Bowl or a draft, to, for instance. Yeah,
0: and yet they can't employ the investigators that we all know exist or at least allow them to do their jobs who can find this stuff either legally or surreptitiously and deal with it. We know they're not concerned with the with the legality of investigative processes. Like well, we know that they don't care about due process when they're punishing their players. So just find the video and punish them under the table or punish them for another reason. It's
1: just so wild. Well, and the, twi- would, I, the twist here, right, is not only did they were they unable to get the video, but they didn't talk to Kareem Hunt. Mm-mm. They never interviewed him. Let's let's listen to a little sound where. Lisa Salters asked Hunt about his interactions with the NFL after this incident was reported. Has the NFL ever questioned you about that incident? No, they have not. Uh, Did they ever ask you to to talk about that incident? No, they have not. Okay. So (laughs) you'd think, right, if you can't get the video, at least you pull Hunt into the league offices in New York. Get as much on the record from him as you can. Uh, get as much information, so, so and maybe and, – and I was trying to find – because I find when these things happen, there's not a lot of prescriptive pieces out there, or at least that I read, that tell us what the NFL should actually do in these kinds of situations. And I sort of think, isn't the move here to question him as much as you can, get as much information, and then just publicly or however you say, like, we are very concerned about this incident, and if we find anything out about this – that changes his version of events. You're suspended, right? They they didn't get to that yeah. point. That just seems like a very reasonable point to get to. They didn't get to that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like if the police are called and you know there are players involved, then that should just be the that should just be the formal. I mean, just the 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 sort of minimal uh, public facing statement, right? Like they're, this, we're aware that we're aware that something happened and we will, you know, if, if anything changes, the punishment will change or we'll be looking into it. Um, yeah. But I even think just from like, a, I mean, it's, I know, I, I know I keep harping on this, but like, how is it that, how is it that TMZ has a hookup to somebody on the, in the hotels, you know, security division and the NFL doesn't? it's not like it's cmz certainly doesn't have a bigger budget than the nfl yeah i mean it's just sort of wild i mean i guess the
1: argument is they can just throw around money however they want to we don't know exactly how they they can and there's
0: and and listen i mean we we both know that there's a lot of that there is a a level of personal esteem for for some people that comes with leaking something and seeing it put out there by a tmz or something like that kind of being that being that conduit um and also it you know maybe it's a it's a moral decision too that 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 something more significant is going to happen because of that. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's, it it, it seems weird. Um, It seems weird that this conversation is based around this video um, because, you know, again, just like with Ray Rice, we, we would like to, we would like to think that knowledge of the event with or without a video accompaniment would be enough to bring us to the same kind of moral conclusion, but it's not, um, or it continues to not be, and um, and you know, it's. It, I have to say, it's the the. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say about Kareem Hunt, the person. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I don't. It's 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 mind-boggling that. Players are still finding them putting themselves in these situations, and aside from the fact that they're still committing these like indefensible actions.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hear that um, a little bit, but I'm always, you know, somebody with me was Peter King today saying nothing good happens after midnight. It's like, but just wherever, whatever, whatever situation you're in or whatever time you're out, just don't, don't attack people and don't yeah. attack women. Like that, that's yeah. okay. You and I have been out past midnight. Uh, that, yep. you know, you don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand this thing where it's like, well, you're in this situation. Well, no, just, just don't do it. Um. Totally of, true. The another interesting thing I thought was the um a piece of Nate Taylor, the Athletic, who's their Chiefs writer, wrote a good story. A fascinating sort of moral twist in this is that the Chiefs have pretty much said a couple in a couple of different ways that if Hunt had not lied to them in February when they asked him what happened in the incident, they would have made every effort to keep him on their roster even after the video came out. All right, so. Mm-hmm. In this series of events, he says, yeah, I got pretty violent or you know maybe I, maybe I push somebody or kick somebody in February. They you know make you know furrow their brow, but then when the video is released to the world, as it was last week, they keep him on the team. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm just and they say, and, and so what they said and then they said this in their in their initial statement was that he was not truthful. And that's the reason they released him. And I heard that repeated a couple of times on ESPN and some other places. Oh, you know, just like Ray Rice, Kareem Hunt lied to his team. I just think that is such a weird effort to flatten this into like an HR dispute, you know, about an employee who lied rather than about an employee who attacked a woman. Yeah. And who cares if he lied to his team? What does that matter? I mean, I understand it matters from an evidence gathering perspective, but like, that that seems to me to be the single least interesting part of this whole argument. Yeah, and the idea that well we would have cut him if he had if he had actually done this act but just told us about it, I mean that's just incredible to me. And I I don't think that's getting enough attention in all this.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think to some extent, I don't. I, I, it squares the circle a little bit for. Um. You know the, I think if, if you were I'm not saying there are people who are willing to dismiss what he did, but I think that it just sort of doubles it doubles the offense and it makes it much less likely that I mean it makes it somewhat less likely that anyone's going to complain about cutting him um, because it, it sort of it, it takes an you know a, a, a contrary argument, I guess, but it but it is really it's just unnecessary and and silly. I think that the lying thing, more than anything else, though, is just a cover your ass sort of thing. Because That's what they I mean. Yeah, I mean, all, all it is is them is them saying they they knew enough to to cut him in February. Right. right. Well,
1: and you just avoid the moral question of should we have players on our football team who commit <laughs> acts like this? It's just. It also feels like football culture to me, gone terribly wrong, where you can literally do anything, but don't lie to the coach. Whatever uh-huh. you do, don't lie to the coach, son. You know, and that that's the most important thing? Eh, that's not the most important thing. Another uniquely shitty part of this, Dave, and this is from the KC Stars' Sam Mellinger. Uh, he notes that the Chiefs immediately upon seeing the video knew that Hunt would never play for them again, but they waited until the NFL put Hunt on the commissioner's exempt list, which is kind of this limbo where you can't play, to ensure he wouldn't play against them this season. So the Chiefs strategically cut Kareem Hunt at a time to avoid him getting on another roster this season and potentially playing them on their way to the Super Bowl. Uh, just, just, just make sure we know that part of this, too, because right? I don't think that's getting enough attention well, either. Speaking of cynical.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think you have to be uh, born cynical to, to see the ridiculousness of that and also of the – the lying thing that we were just discussing. And I think also, you know, frankly, just the speed with which they reacted in the first place. I don't think they had to see the video. I think it's pretty clear from the snail's pace at which these investigations have gone in the past. It's pretty clear to me anyway that that this entire course of action was in place for months. And they were just, in case the video came out, they knew exactly what they were going to do. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe I'm being too cynical.
1: TMZ, America's most trusted news source, uh, reports today. Bright boys, we go on the air that Kareem Hunt was accused of a nightclub attack in January. This is a separate attack. Yeah, uh, attacking a man this time, and there was another Cleveland or excuse me, another Kansas City Chiefs player allegedly present. We'll let that sort itself out. But just to just to note uh, another another reporting scoop for TMZ. All right, David. Topic number three on November twenty third. New York Times reporters Sharon. Lafreniere, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Maggie Haberman reported the reappearance of one Jerome Corsi, right-wing conspiracist, swift boater, birther in the Robert Mueller Russia investigation. The very short version is this because we could go way into the weeds here. But Mueller is investigating where, whether Roger Stone and Corsi – and in fact, Roger Stone through Corsi uh, had any sort of <laughs> – <laughs> How should we say it? you know had any sort of like operational uh, relationship with Julian Assange and Russian hackers. Corsi believes that he's about to be indicted for lying to investigators. He has refused a plea deal saying he's prepared to go for j- prepared to go to jail. Excuse me. I really enjoyed Eric Lack's piece in the New where he said, the irony that someone who spent years making baseless arguments about the illegitimacy of one president, that is Obama, is now the target of a federal investigation that may well undermine the legitimacy of another one is almost too on the nose. And I completely <laughs> agree with that. And Lack also notes the irony, if you listen to both Stone and Corsi in their public statements here, saying, we didn't actually know anything about this. We were just guessing. We were just, we were, we were sort of guessing what kinds of emails that Wikipedia was about to dump. So Lacks says, after years of portraying himself as a possessor of information they don't want you to know, he said that he didn't actually have any inside information in the summer of 2016. Another great – what did you make of Jerome Corsi's reappearance? Oh, man. Um, I love the idea and that that
0: this, like, 70-year-old guy who just, like, pops up on YouTube from time to time is somehow just reading the internet tea leaves in a way that no <laughs> one else around him is. Um yeah you know, it's funny. I have been, uh, you know, uh, following Corsi for for some time, um, I mean, since the very beginning of his of his uh, you know appearance in the Obama administration um, with 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 great regularity, I have to admit that I don't know what it was that until this le- that until very recently, I was confused I had I had confused myself about his backstory. I thought that prior to unfit for command where he sw- that where he made the allegation the Swift boat allegations against presidential candidate John Kerry yep um, that I thought that he was a respectable or somewhat respectable journalist or at least an established think tanker up to that point yeah, because not so much. no no and I because I guess this is just shows my naivete. I guess it was just that that I took that because the press took him somewhat seriously, or, or I, I don't, or, or that he he looked like a man of some
1: repute. <laughs> I don't. know There's the white hair and the whatever. Well, I, remember I, he also put Ph.D. on his yes, uh, book covers. That was a big yes. thing at the time. He, yeah, but by the some, way, can I answer ways, your question of why he was taken yes. so seriously? I think he sort of cracked the code. Of how to publish something between hardcovers that was full of errors and just pure garbage, but sort of inject that directly into the right wing media system. So yes. It just remember this: the Fox News is becoming ascendant as of 2004, right? And all of a sudden, it's like I can if I just publish this, I'll get on all the Fox News shows. Fox hosts will be talking about this. Right wing radio will be talking about this. And it doesn't have to be true. Yeah. No,
0: it's totally true. I mean, he was the, in some ways, just the canary in the coal mine for, you know, the media world that we live in right now um, and the sort of the Trump era in general. Um, You know, I I think that it's all that said, it's sort of amazing that he and Roger Stone are central players right now because they seem like they should be wildly insignificant to I mean, when we're talking about a presidential campaign, um, but they are just sort of, you know, they're just, it's I don't, I don't I don't I don't want to make a light of what's going on with the Mueller investigation. We have yep. a lot more a lot more to go, but they are these just sort of like Rosencrantz and Gildenstern characters <laughs> that are just like bumbling through
1: this this whatever weird moment we're in right now. Oh, totally, and that it's so Trumpian that they would be elevated. To this thing or to this stage, at this yeah. point, yeah, it is. It is truly weird. And by the way, Jerome Corsi, despite telling you he's about to be indicted uh, for lying to investigators, he's having a ball. Uh, he's sure. he's talking to everybody, interviews with the New York Times, Tucker Carlson. Here's a little bit of Corsi telling Ari Milber what he's willing to do rather than sign Mueller's plea deal. You were offered a plea deal by Bob Mueller's team. That's correct. Why did you reject it? Well, I felt the deal was fraudulent. It required me to lie and it required me to violate various regulations and even, I thought, commit fraud. And I won't do that. I will not lie to keep myself out of jail. And I realized that I could go to jail for the rest of my life. I'm 72 years old, I might die in jail. But I'm still making this decision. think <laughs> what um, One unsavory aspect we should mention here. Speaking of cynicism, watch. I mean, may need to be a new semi-regular department here on the press box. Will summer over at the Daily Beast notes that though coursing new Podesta's emails, John Podesta, Clinton campaign chairman's emails, had been stolen by hackers in 2016. He was telling mm-hmm. people as late as last year that Democratic National Committee yeah. staffer Seth Rich – had stolen the emails and was murdered in revenge for the heist. So Mm -hmm. while he was allegedly participating in one conspiracy, he was alleging a completely different conspiracy that Mm -hmm. was bonkers and fake in the media, which is pretty much, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of Pete Corsi right there, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I thought I was, that, that was, that piece is what kind of started our conversation that we're having right now. and, And I, and I thought it was a really interesting piece, um, probably more so for Roger Stone um only because I'm a little bit more confused about his what his like career you know what his job is but I think on the Corsi side I'm a little bit more forgiving because you know it's not like he w- one assumes that he doesn't believe most of the conspiracy theories that he's touting right i mean he's he it's not it's one thing to call somebody i mean there's you know there's the conspiracy theorist who's just like the guy standing in the in the town square yelling crazy things because he's, you know, imbalanced. But there's also just a professional conspiracy theorist who makes money off of website yeah, ads it's like oh, this and, is... and YouTube hits and whatever. And and this is that's his job. I mean, and a new book, job. by the way,
1: as you pointed out, he's already got a book about this.
0: Talking about, by the way, talking about cracking the code of putting something, of, you know, putting a bunch of like poorly written lies between hardcovers. He, as someone, uh, my, speaking of myself, who used to design (laughs) book covers, he certainly cracked that code. Like they're not, his book covers aren't great, but he's got that perfect. Blend of like uh, of of like you know gothic sands and just like some little like seraphy thing for his na- seraphy font for his name to make you feel like you're looking at a proper book even though <laughs> in this case it could not possibly be a book. Do we um, think it's the
1: same guy who's designing Dinesh D'Souza's movie posters? Oh, no, I'm sure sh- absolutely. There's sure, like one right wing guy who can make it look I gotta just get, enough I gotta like get a re- into that market. <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> I was gonna say you should do that piece, but you actually just want want the business. Yeah. Uh, David, our our final section here where I hit you with a couple of quick we got five minutes left can i hit you with a couple of quick headlines yeah and by the way one of our listeners suggested we call this the kicker would that be is that is that journal journal is that too journalism me
0: yeah it's got there, there's kickers in sports too it's a perfect it, it, uh, yeah, a it splits the uprights if you will that's great
1: david the plea deal of michael cohen trump's former attorney reignited the race that you and i have been tracking now for several months which is the race to declare the end of the trump presidency you know the facts aren't all in, but I think we very well could look back on this day, November 29th, 2018, as the beginning of the end of the Trump presidency. Then there's our old pal David, Jeffrey Tubin. You may remember his previous entry in this race was August 21st, uh, when he said it may be that the Trump presidency will be divided into the pre and post August 21st periods. Here's Tubin with Anderson Cooper on Friday.
0: You know, today's the first day I actually thought Donald Trump might not finish his term in office. Really? I mean, I think this thing is enormous.
1: And Sooner or later they're gonna be right. <laughs> if we all just keep declaring that Donald Trump's presidency has finally gotten to a, the end or the beginning of the end, eventually somebody's gonna be right. I mean, just call it. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it the day before the election in 2020. Can I could have, be right.
0: Could, can we have Jim just tweet hour by hour from the uh, press box Twitter account? This, <laughs> this, is the, this is the hour where With the, the Trump presidency ends. So we can
1: just resurface that tweet and delete all the yeah, rest we'll of Yeah, we'll delete the, the rest ends. of them. It'll be fine. Another item here, Laurel Wamsley, NPR reporter and my former colleague at Slate, she was reading the Washington Post the other day, and she uh, noticed a true crime heading. This is above a story. You know how they do those little story headings? Yeah. Uh, topic headings that said true crime. And she notices, wait a second, this is a newspaper. So- if it's in a newspaper, it's just crime, right? There's no, there is no David Baldacci novel happening in a newspaper. This is not mm-hmm. like the this is not like Charles Dickens where we're serializing <laughs> right. something. This is going to be a true story. A true crime. <laughs> not necessary. I like that. The um, crazy New York Times story last week about Les Moonves, written by James Stewart, oh, Rachel yeah. Abrams, and Ellen Gabler, everyone should go read that. I know the term novelistic quality is overused. But this had the quality of, like, Elmore Leonard in the sense that you have this fading Hollywood talent manager yeah. who finds himself in a position to know that Moonves has allegedly committed harassment, if not abuse. And then he starts to prod Moonves to do all these favors for him, including uh-huh. showing up at his birthday party and giving him a tie so yeah. he can impress all his friends and sort of get back into the business. Absolutely incredible. I mean, forget the new accusation against Les Moonves, which is disturbing and, and may, in fact— Uh, wind up costing him his giant uh, golden parachute at CBS. But the story, just the human drama of that. I mean, that feels like such a wonderfully wrought piece of Pulp Fiction. I just absolutely loved it. And finally, David, one more for you. This is from CNN's media newsletter. New York Magazine unveiled a brand new homepage on Tuesday. The magazine said the redesigned page offered, quote, a cleaner, more modern look. (laughs) Now, I've said to you before, haven't I? Every single magazine redesign in journalism history has Mm -hmm. offered a cleaner, more modern look. It's Mm -hmm. never been described. No one has said, I want a more antiquated, cluttered look. No no one has said this "This needs to look like that. So I went back and found some fun examples. Uh, Vanity Affairs' Chris Dixon, 2015, talking about his redesign. It was about making the design cleaner, stronger, and more compelling while remaining true to our character. Uh, Wired UK in 2017, the look is cleaner. (laughs) The stories are running longer, and our imagery is slightly more sparing and generous. Oh, this may from National Geographic. Uh, the style harks back to our past, but is updated for a more modern feel, based on our arch- archival type that's been digitally recut for a clean new look. <laughs> but this was my favorite. This is in 2013. <laughs> you know the dating site eHarmony. I'm this familiar was, with it. This yeah. Was, <laughs> don't say any more. <laughs> this 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 was an actual headline. eHarmony rolls out a cleaner magazine style redesign. E Harmony, E was boasting about their clean redesign. So, look, if you if you redesign your website or your magazine, I am good for you. But there's no need to say that it's a clean redesign. We'll just assume that, unless you specify otherwise. All right, that's the press box for this week. <laughs> he is David Shoemaker. The producer is Jim Cunningham. Our research handled by Chris Almeida. More lukewarm takes about the media next week. See you later, David. See you, Brian. Let me start with a thought that I want to hear your response to. No. TMZ, America's most trusted news source. No, and I, because I guess
0: this is just shows my naivete. I guess it was just that that I t-
1: that because party always finds you, David. <laughs> no one has said I want a more antiquated, cluttered look. No, no one has said this. No. <laughs>
0: Like seventy-year-old guy who just like pops up on YouTube from time to time and somehow
1: coined the phrase "you demand." In the sixties, George Bush wrote in her book on her dad. What? (laughs) What? I knew that there was like a fighting the wimp factor. Right-wing conspiracists. Swift boater, birther, makes money off of website ads. Have we just gotten to a point?
0: Earliest political memories is sitting with my parents on that election night and listening to my dad say, he looks pretty relieved. So, (laughs) you'd think, right, if you can't get the video, right, truly, truly bizarre. That's just really bizarre. I'm also glad to know that you're bumbling through this, this, whatever weird moment we're in right now.